which brings us to our new series this morning that we're going to open up uh, to you, kind of giving us a, a several weeks to venture into this topic of Christmas, and we're going to teach through a series that anticipates Christmas, right? We're going to teach through aspects of the Bible as it was leading us to this big event of Jesus Christ being born, and the fancy word for that is the incarnation. If you're kind of new to some of that lingo, uh, to be incarnate was for God to actually put on human flesh. And so the, the title of this series is Hope Incarnate. Hope came to us from God in the form of a little baby born on a mission. And we're going to learn something about what was anticipated in that mission. But the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to visit the setting into which this hope comes. Because we'll learn today that that setting is not just an ancient setting. it's, It's still a modern setting, right? It's still our setting. Hope incarnate still comes to us in a real similar setting. And that setting is in the title there. Hope amidst darkness and the shadow of death. Let's look here at Matthew chapter 4. Let's start this passage. It's going to lead us into the topic this morning. Matthew chapter 4 verse 15 says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a geographical issue, right? You guys, Jerusalem, due north, Sea of Galilee, about the distance of New Orleans to Baton Rouge. That's Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum, those famous cities. So this is what is being referred to here. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Right, Matthew here is, is quoting the prophet Isaiah, who some 750 years before this event is, is seeing by God's eyesight, he's seeing the day in which this light was going to dawn. And this is how he's describing. So he, he looks forward to planet Earth and people dwelling, doing life in this setting and this is how he describes that setting. And you know, it's, it's a very helpful thing. If you and I are going to ever get the Christmas story, I mean, you guys know a lot of people don't get the Christmas story. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, they've, they've just substituted other stuff into it because apparently whatever was going on in this Bethlehem Christmas story wasn't enough to sustain the holiday, right? We're going to need a dude in a red suit and need some flying reindeer and some stuff that's really, really interesting because that, that is, well, that's just kind of boring, isn't it? Well, that screams you have no idea what the Christmas story is about, right? Well, there's something going on in that setting and it helps us to get the Christmas story. As a matter of fact, it helps us to get the gospel which the Christmas story is merely a part of the gospel story, if we understand that setting and the conditions in that time and what really was going on with humanity. What did humanity really need? And there's some interesting terms here, and the one we're going to explore today is darkness. So today we're going to focus on this setting of darkness and the encountering of light and hope. And so can I just tease you with that word? I want to pray for you 
to start the message, but I want to tease you with that word, with that, that sense of hope, because that's what we're going to teach about throughout this month. There was a need for hope to appear in such a place that we're going to learn about today. And that never goes away. There's still a need for hope to appear. And, you know, you can be here this morning, and if I were to ask you, you know, what what does your life taste like right now? Does it taste like hope? You feel, I mean, you here this morning sitting in this room with this sense of, man, there's this, this sense of just overall well-being in me right now. There's this, this sense of anticipation. I anticipate the future. Or, or do you dread the future? Are you afraid of another day like last week or last month? Or, oh my God, if 2018 is like 2017 was. Right, that... that that, that doesn't taste like hope, does it? But hope came, and hope still comes. And that's what we're going to learn about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for gathering us together, and thank you for the special things that you do when we are together. Lord, thank you for the preaching of the Word of God. Thank you for a living Word that comes to us. It's, it's not a dead word. Lord, we're, we're reading passages that were written down many years ago, but they are alive, and they are as alive this morning as they have ever been alive, because they are your words. So, Lord, we posture our hearts. We pull ourselves into this room, Lord, from all the troubles of our lives, all the schedule, all the challenges, all the hurt feelings, all the distractions of life. We pull ourselves right into this room this morning. This is where we are. And this is where we're going to be. We're going to listen. Because, Lord, we need hope in our lives. And we're here to receive that from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the setting that Isaiah foresaw, it's, it's Palestine. In about the year 6 B.C. And, you know, when exactly was Jesus born is it's a little bit of a subject of debate. Um, but most agree that it wasn't 0 B.C. It was a few years before that. And, and many would disagree as to whether or not it was in December or not, but some would support that, that, that it could have been in that time. But what, what exactly was going on that Isaiah foresaw and that Matthew writes about in this setting? Because quite honestly, people were doing life, right? If you popped into Palestine, you walked in the streets of Jerusalem and you saw life, you'd see life. You'd see commerce taking place. You'd see an economy. You'd see business transactions. Uh, You'd see people in relationships with each other. You'd see people getting married and having children. You'd see single people. You'd see people traveling from one place to another. You'd see sports and sporting events. There would be entertainment available. There'd be celebrities. There'd be royal family drama. I mean, this stuff sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, but somehow we kind of have this scene of, you know, Jerusalem, dirty streets. It's not even in color yet, right? Uh, Well, not exactly. Uh, Let me give you this little quote from Alfred Edersheim. If you've never read, I don't quote from Alfred a lot, but if you would like one of the most helpful 
historical perspectives on the time and life of Jesus Christ. His book is outstanding. It's, it's not a short read. It's small print and it's unattractive. It's about that thick. Uh, but it is a wealth of homework. If you want to just learn more about that time. But here's what he says. Jerusalem's population, about 200 to 250,000. The great palace was the residence of the king and the court with all their following and luxury. Learned academies were filled with hundreds. Large warehouses in Jerusalem. Industrial centers from busy Galilee. The markets of Jerusalem thronged with noisy sellers and bargaining buyers. Galilee sent not only its manufacturers but its provisions. Fish, fruit known for its lusciousness. Oil, grape syrup, and wine. We read of at least seven special markets. Those for cattle, wool. Ironware, clothes, wood, bread, and fruit and vegetables. In addition to the marketplaces, businesses, uh, business was done in restaurants and wine shops, of which there were many, where you might be served with some dish, fresh or salted fish, fried locusts, a mess of vegetables, a dish of soup, pastry, sweet meats, or a piece of fruitcake, and be washed down with Judean or Galilean wine or Edumian vinegar or foreign beer. From these busy scenes, we turn to the more aristocratic quarters of the upper city, tenanted by another class, right? Jerusalem had an uptown, probably had a garden district too. (laughs) There were two worlds in Jerusalem side by side. On the one hand was Grecianism with its theater and its amphitheater, foreigners filling the court, crowding the city, foreign tendencies and ways from the foreign king downwards. We'll learn about Herod in just a moment. On the other hand, was the old Jewish world overshadowed by temple and synagogue. So if you ventured into this setting, you would see life. You would see noisy, busy, clamoring people moving from place to place. You'd see conversations, and you'd see people smiling. You'd see entertainment. You'd see all kinds of stuff. There'd be news headlines. There'd be fashion. There would be stuff that's pretty familiar to us. But yet Isaiah looks and sees, and God himself allows Isaiah to see this. And Matthew lifts our eyes to something else is here. Darkness. People dwelling in darkness. And, and there, was, there was obvious darkness in this time, right? This was a dark December. This first Christmas was dark times. Uh, it, was, it was politically and nationally a dark time. If you were, as the Bible is writing itself into a Jewish context, if you were one of those Jews in that context, you were living in a setting that had been overtaken and ruled and dominated by the Romans. So you were living in occupied territory. You were under the rule of a foreign set of people. And they had different ideas than you. You would have awoken and lived on the streets with a a massively plural society. If you and I follow the news, sometimes we look at the news and we're troubled by the news. Right? I mean, it's, there's some bad stuff going on out there. If you were following that society, I think you'd even be more troubled. It was a very, very plural society. Uh, you had monotheism right next to polytheism, right next to uh, spiritism, where you were worshiping relatives and, and all kinds of things openly 
all over the place. It was just common in that day. The morality there, there was not a cohesive birthplace of morality. Like, you know, a lot of us, we come out of a a European background that informs us because we're under the influence of Judeo-Christian values and our nation got shaped by that. This is not like that. You've got Egyptian and Greek and Middle Eastern all coming together with different ideas about what, what does sexuality even look like? And so all around your culture, it would have been a dark time. And then there would have been just the entire Roman presence as you, you walk down the street and they, something that looks like a third world to us today were, were armed policemen. You guys travel to other countries where you see this, right? We have policemen that, you know, they, they make sure they, they're sidearm and everything's buckled down and they, they don't look like they're about to shoot you. You walk in some other countries, right? And there's a guy with an M16. I mean, it, it's like, uh, this, this could get dangerous. And in more, well, you would see Rome felt that way. It was like occupied by a military. And not only that, the irritation of the idea that those heavy taxes you were paying under this politically corrupt system that overtaxed you because part of the people in the tax system stole from the tax system. So they stole it from you in order to pay part of it to Rome. Part of what you were paying was for that soldier to turn around and oppress you. This, this is the darkness of that day. And corruption was everywhere. Everything that could be corrupted was corrupted. Everything. Religion was corrupted. When you walked into the temple in Jerusalem, this centerpiece, this thing that God, you know, we learned about the tabernacle, God put this centerpiece of his dwelling amongst men, and that's, this is what's in Jerusalem. And it has become this house of corruption. Because, you know, see, there was this little thing that had to happen. You know, you were bringing your sacrifices if you were a Jew from all over the land. And sometimes you couldn't, you couldn't travel so far with those things. So you'd have to come to Jerusalem with some money instead and buy sacrifices to give at the offerings there in, in Jerusalem. But they had these, they had a special currency, you see, in the temple. They, they didn't just deal with any kind of money. They had their own money. And therefore, there was an exchange rate with their old money. And you thought you'd get how much for that? Oh, no, not today. Uh, You're only going to get this much for that. And so there was this corruption. Remember when Jesus comes into the temple and he throws over the money changers? This is is what he's doing. And the the leadership, the people, the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of Judaism in that day, corrupt. I mean, it's, it's a legitimate thing. You guys have heard me say this before. It's a legitimate thing that Jesus Christ was, was murdered by the mafia. It was a money-making business in Jerusalem that Jesus was messing with. He was messing with organized crime. And if what he said and who he was messed with the future of that temple, we're not going to have any money. And so these Sanhedrin guys, they work behind the scenes. They had a court at night. You don't do that. Well, sure you do if you're the mafia. You do all kinds of things. And that was the setting. And there was this guy named Herod. And I don't want to point Herod out to us because he's in the Christmas story quite a bit, isn't he? We know something about Herod. Herod's the, the Jewish king during that time. The king. You know, the king meant something. 
Right? The king was this rallying point for the nation. The king was the, the one dynamic, influential, powerful leader that was, that was going to keep us safe and was going to provide for us. Right? We, we, we don't have kings, so we kind of don't know what that's like. But there's a king and his people relationship that you look to the king in a certain way. And there's a sense of, of loyalty and needing and wanting that person in your life. But the king there was a guy named Herod, right? Matthew chapter 2 brings, brings Herod into this story, right? Verse 1 says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, when it, was, when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Have you ever thought why Jerusalem would be troubled? The king of the Jews is being born. Why, why are you troubled by that? Well, when I tell you a little bit more about Herod, you'll see why they were troubled. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And down in verse 13 of Matthew 2, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right, this is who this, this guy is. You, ha- you, have to, you have to catch a little bit about these dark elements of this man named Herod. Herod was not an Israelite. Herod was an Adumian. He was a descendant of Edom. Yet he was sitting on the throne of Israel. So he is the king. And in this part of the world, when Rome conquered this part of the world, it, it had alliances. The land had alliances to rulers in the east and people in the land with them. Well, Herod happened to be one of the people in the land, but the previous rulers were from the east. And so there came an opportunity when Rome had a shift of power that Herod saw an opportunity to seize power. So he goes to Rome and he appeals to the leaders in Rome, uh, both the emperor as well as the senate, and and they make him the king over this part of their, their kingdom. He goes back, has to fight wars, has to take over some things that are there. And, and part of, you understand, this is, this is your classic sort of king's going to get killed by somebody in his life kind of a setting. It's dangerous to be the king. And there was a great concern for him as to whether or not he'd ever be betrayed. And the people who would betray you were the people who had access to the throne. Well, the people who could have any claim to the throne in Herod's day were either his own relatives... Because he had created that access. Or they were the people from the east. So when these, we don't know if it was three, but when these wise men from the east show up looking for a king, guess what he thinks? The descendants from the east are here to take my throne from me. 
And this puts him in freak-out mode. And he was pretty good at freak-out mode. The man had ten wives, which probably made most men freak out. Um, <laughs> but he didn't keep all of them. He killed some of them. He had many children, but not all of them survived either. Right? As a matter of fact, uh, at one point, Augustus Caesar, right, who had power over the whole realm here, but this is what he said of Herod. He said, uh, Augustus is reported to have once made the pun that he would rather be Herod's pig, which in Greek is the word hus, than his son, hoyas. A reference to the fact that as a nominal Jew, Herod at least had scruples about killing pigs, if none about executing his own family members. So this guy, was, he was paranoid, and he was scary to be around. He had appointed a Babylonian as the high priest in Israel, a Babylonian. I mean, you can imagine the loyalty of the people of God to their own people and bloodline. He appoints a Babylonian. And then later on, when Aristobulus was a high priest later, he's a descendant of Israel. He has him drowned in his bathtub so that he could put somebody else in as high priest. See, the whole land had just become this corrupt setting and this scene of people fleeing for their lives. The reason why we have the story of this flight to Egypt is because this man was unstable and he could kill who knows who. And you're going to have to, Mary and Joseph had to run for their lives lest he find out their son is this king that this man is afraid of. So this is, this is the dark setting in Palestine in 6 BC on the eve of this first Christmas. But it's not too different than the dark setting in that same part of the world today. Darkness is still darkness. And it's still here. If you were sitting in Nazareth today and you got in a car and you drove one hour, you would drive into a country that we know over here as Syria. How many of you guys know that Syria has been in the news a little bit in the last few years? One of the, the most horrific places to live in the world is Syria. Uh, all the stories of people fleeing for their lives as, as a king... A paranoid, controlling king named Assad, partnered with other foreign powers, are at play amongst rebels in the land who are trying to resist this king, and an entity that we also know as ISIS is in that land. That's dark. Syria is a dark place. Since this outbreak of civil war in Syria uh, back about six or seven years ago now, there have been, I, I think, almost 13 million people have fled for their lives. 13 million people. I mean, you hear about the, the issues of refugees throughout Europe and, and people fleeing from Syria. Uh, this, these are familiar settings, and this, this corruption that was in Palestine, well, there's, there's corruption all over our world. I mean, visit these different locations around our globe and you'll get your eyes open to the darkness that's at work behind the scenes. Right? I put in your outline there, warlords of Africa, the drug cartels of Mexico, the terrorist networks of the Middle East, the mafia networks of organized crime, 
These are all the products of darkness. Hustle and bustle people all you want. In the presence of lives being lived is great darkness. Religion often is mixed with oppression, control, and criminality. I just throw this out as a, as a thought for you. Because I've heard... Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to not be overly unpolite. Stupid is probably the best word. Um, stupid comments made by people who want to take a, a hostile posture toward Christianity in particular, religion in general, saying that, you know, you know, what you have in the world is all this violence and death because of religion. That's why. It's because of religion. Um, you know, if you, you just look at that a little more honestly, and I'll show you how you can look at it honestly in just a second. It's, it, when you stare out at the world, much of what you see, it's just plain, pure criminality is all it is. It's one group figuring out a way to take advantage of another group, period. And if that group happens to use religion to do that, well, so be it. But it's not religion so much fostering it's criminality. It's the darkness of the human heart. And that darkness will use anything, anything it will use. And so it's almost laughable when, when you stare at the events of ISIS and much of the terrorist networks. Uh, you ever find it curious that you've got people who grew up in the West, lived in the West, lived their whole life in the West. I don't even know if they know how to spell Islam, much less Muslim or anything else that's really believed in any of those settings. But they got a gun in their hands and they're shooting people. What's really going on there? Well, if you go visit terrorist networks, they are much more like organized crime than they are like a church gathering. They are controlling the money. They are controlling people. They are, they're very sinful in their practices in all kinds of ways. So they manage to grab a few pieces of religion, hide in it like camouflage. But really what they're after is the same thing that organized crime is after. They just happen to be using religion. And this darkness is still in our world. It was in the world then. They used religion then. When you met the Sanhedrin and you met the high priest and you met the king who built the temple, by the way. Right? King Herod built the temple. You met organized crime mixed together with religion. And that's still in our world. Along with the darkness of a Kim Jong-il and Korea, uh, a, a modern Herod, a, a guy who is unpredictable, has ultimate power, ready to be destructive. And, and then if you look out at the, the undercurrent of darkness in our world... That's showing itself in human trafficking issues and, and exploiting people sexually. That's showing up all kinds of places these days. Right? There is estimated a $150 billion industry of human trafficking. And of course, these guys don't file forms and report things, so that's probably just an estimate, Right? 20 to 30 million people are enslaved around the world. That's just an estimate. And the predominant reason is for sexual exploitation. I heard an NPR report. It's just, you know, this again, why, you know, why do you need Christmas, right? I mean, it was just to give us a holiday so we can go do some shopping. We, we can celebrate Santa Claus. 
Or is this a really a dark world that we live in? Because, I mean, hey, we're, we're pretty civilized folks, right? I mean, what's, what's this all about? Really? We're really pretty civilized folks? Now, I'm listening to NPR the other day, and they're talking about this conflict that's arisen over the last several years between Japan and Korea. Uh, because Korea has begun to build these little statues. They're very simple little statues, and they put them in strategic places. And, they, and, and each one of them tells the story of a young woman. And they don't say much, but what they point to is World War II's, quote, comfort women. And they had an interview with one of the women who was still alive. A young girl, when Japan was at war with Korea, they would take these young women and they would force them to the front lines where they lived in some kind of a hut-like brothel. And these women would, would be raped by 70 men a day. And you look out at the world and you think, that is unbearably dark. You imagine you just take a person and force them into that kind of an existence? This, this is the world that we live in. Even the civilized part of it. Everybody following the news lately? Just one name after another of sexual harassment and exploitation of others. Of what's in the heart of men. Surprising, isn't it? When you have names like Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, CBS News, John Besh. I'm I'm sorry, I, I read that in the newspaper like, no. I mean, no. Actors... Kevin Spacey, Ben Affleck, Dustin Hoffman. And I mean, this is ignoring the reports earlier, you know, the Bill Cosby reports and the Bill Clinton reports and the Bill O'Reilly reports and Donald Trump reports. And it just seems as though there's darkness in all kinds of places, aren't they? There's motivations and there's issues inside of us that gain control over humanity and force our world into darker and darker and darker dimensions. And listen, and, and you know, we're Americans. We are, we, are, we are so out of touch. And we have this strange belief that our advancement, our technology, our scientificness, the fact that we're not uncivilized. Right? When I talk about this kind of darkness, you think uncivilized. That's just where you go, right? It's those uncivilized people. So what's the answer? What do they really need? Well, they need to be educated, Keith. That's what they need. They need to be educated. Really? I, I, don't, I don't think the Herods of the world are lacking education. I don't think you get to that kind of power, influence, and position because you're stupid. I think you're a pretty sharp dude. I think these terrorist networks are filled with some pretty sharp people. These are not idiots. They'd be gone if they were. They figured out all kinds of things. They're well educated. I think the people on the list of sexual harassment in our country aren't unintelligent. They went to some of our best universities. See, but, but we have this massive mistake taking place in our lives. We believe something inherently good about us. So if you just design something where people can, can become better versions of themselves, 
That's the solution. So we believe strongly in education. Education. We're people driven by education. If you just get people the right information, you, you, you will not civilize people out of darkness. If you could, the Christmas story would be very, very different. You wouldn't have the light dawning that we have in this story. You just would have, I don't know, maybe a couple of textbooks fall out of heaven. Read carefully, live better. I mean, instructions. That'd be it. Listen, listen, life is not improving, right? If you think civilization and technology is helping us, Os Guinness wrote a book a number of years ago called Unspeakable, and it, it is about the evil that's in this world. He says the scale and scope of evil has increased in the modern world. To anyone who thinks deeper than the morning headlines, the atrocity of September 11 forms part of the wider record of the dark catalog of human evil in modern history and pales beside the worst of the evils. The Ottoman massacre of 1.5 million Armenians in World War I and the Rwandan-Sudanese massacres in the 1990s in which nearly 3 million people died are like a pair of bookends that frame the 20th century as the most murderous century in all history. It is also the most technologically advanced century. It is the most civilized century. And it is the most murderous one as well. Leaving aside the 100 million human beings killed in the century's wars, more than 100 million more were killed by their fellow human beings in political repression, massacre, and genocide. And some of us remember these headlines from our younger days about Cambodia. Cambodia's Pol Pot was a leader in Cambodia. He slaughtered two million people, a quarter of his nation's population. Joseph Stalin murdered 30 million. Mao, 65 million. The three or four million victims of the current civil war in the Congo, he brings up. Listen, um, there's still darkness in our world. No matter how gray and black and white you make that setting in Jerusalem, the 20th century is as dark as it's ever been in this world. And into that, light comes. Matthew 4. Into this land, this Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned suddenly. Light in the midst of this darkness. Darkness. Light in the midst of darkness. Don't make the mistake of thinking this was light in the midst of sunset or sunrise. Or low light. These were low light conditions into which the light came. This is darkness into which the light comes. And to accurately understand the gospel, one has to accurately understand that. But you and I live in times that have effectively blurred that like probably no other generation has. Our times are filled with kind of the human potential elements. All that's good in humanity. And so did light come into darkness or did it just kind of come and turn the light that was there up a little bit? Well, let's, let's look here. Let's look at this dawning of light. Matthew chapter 1. Just pull out one dimension here. I'm going to pull a couple of thoughts from it. Matthew chapter 1 tells this story of this light coming. And, 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 and let's learn from what it took for God 
to deal with darkness. Just look at what he did to deal with the darkness of our times. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right Into this darkness comes this miraculous event. Some, something is going to come literally out of nowhere into this setting. And it's going to occur in ways that no one could have had an explanation for. No one. A virgin who's never had sexual relations is going to be found with a child. This is God's means of bringing light into the world. And this is what was necessary for that light. This intrusion from God. Let me just look at three dimensions of this. Three things that the incarnation teaches us. One, darkness cannot self-generate light. And humanity cannot generate its own savior. We cannot self-fix this darkness. This this is a lesson that can never, ever be overlooked by us. There is a condition in this world that humanity cannot fix. It cannot generate itself, right? This darkness that was in the land is not met by God making a few good suggestions. He doesn't drop a rule book down to us and say, hey, if you'll follow these things, God knows that in this setting is a bankruptcy There's nothing in us, among us, that he could tell us, look to that, pick that up, look inside, use this. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take light coming into darkness. Can I give you a quick theology of darkness? Run through these verses here with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. says, for although they knew God, right, at some point... God says this is true about humanity. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's helpful to know the birthplace of things, isn't it? Do you want to know where darkness gets birthed from? The rejection of the knowledge of God. When humanity says, I don't, we don't need your input, God. Darkness took the place of light. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, it got pretty ridiculous around here. 
They began to worship stuff that they ate. Reptiles. Lift them up as deities. That's pretty confusing. Well, that's what you do when you're in the dark. You do all kinds of confusing things. And that's what they were doing. But, but here's, here's a living reality for every one of us. Right? I mean, you, you know how your, your, your phone's got that little thing you put your thumb on it, you can make it go up and down, it gets brighter and darker and brighter and darker. You know the thing I'm talking about? Can you dim your phone? You know what I'm talking about? Right, well, just, just imagine in the spectrum of light, if, if, as you slide towards the knowledge of God, as you slide toward knowing God, light brightens your life in your world. As you reject the knowledge of God and move away from it and don't need it and don't meditate on it and don't pursue it, don't make room for it, don't hold your life underneath it, darker and darker becomes your reality. That's still true today in our world, right? Ephesians 4 verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to their hardness of heart. See, these are the ingredients of darkness. Hardened hearts, ignorance, a choosing not to want to know. John chapter 3 verse 19 says, and, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were Evil. This, that sounds so harsh, doesn't it? Can, can we just put real life into that sentence? People love darkness because their deeds are evil. Let's make this a little more reachable. Because their deeds are out of step with God. And they don't want to be in step with God. I want my life to be the way I want my life to be. Am I the only one in the room who wants it that way? I want to take my life and have it fulfill my goals on my time frame, on my terms. I want the people in my life. I want the events in my life. I want the schedule and the calendar of my life. To be under my supervision. I don't want God in charge. I want to be in charge. And those moments when I let God be in charge, they don't last too long without me wanting to have a, you know, what's the, what's the phone number for the complaint department? You know, this is not going right. What does God think he's doing? We love the darkness because we love doing things our own way. For our own reasons. Which that's just a nice definition for evil. I mean evil sounds like. You know. Herod. That's evil. No, no, no. no. Evil is when you hijack that which belongs to God. That's evil. And my life last time I checked. It belongs to God. But people love darkness. Because they want their own life their own way. For everyone who does wicked things. Hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. John 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me <clears throat> may not remain in darkness. Now read that verse carefully. Did you know you were in darkness? 
I mean, I've always thought I was a pretty good person, you know, had some kind of understanding of right and wrong and decency. But then the Bible comes along and says this Jesus who dawned with his light comes to those who, no, 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 you're not in light, you're in darkness, Keith. Your life was in the dark. And I've come that you wouldn't remain there. How many of you know if Jesus Christ didn't appear? And if we don't believe in him, we remain in the dark. That's what that verse says. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's what happened at Christmas, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God gives the light. You and I don't generate the light. We don't make it happen. We don't look within and struggle to figure out how can I bring light from myself? How can humanity solve its own problem? We don't look to humanity, right? And this, this is an interesting thing that Christmas informs us about, right? We can run past the story too quick and you know, when it gets boring to us, that's why we slide on to Santa Claus. But what a statement is being made just in the verses that we read earlier. Into this darkness, a light has dawned. It just appeared into our reality. Came light. It came from God. We didn't generate it. And this is an interesting different starting point then, isn't it? To how we fix our world. How we fix ourselves. This is very different than the human potential movement. The positive mental attitude movement. And don't get me wrong, I like to be around positive people more than I like to be around negative people. So if you're going to subscribe to something before you come and visit me, read your PMA book and then come, let's visit. Instead of coming in with, hey, you know, the glass ain't even half empty, Keith. It's bone dry, man. All right, you're no fun to be with, so let's, let's not practice that a lot. But don't make the enormous mistake, which is what happened in the mid-1900s, and the church ate it up like it was candy, and turned people inward to their own positiveness where you don't even need God. You don't need light to come. You just need to be more positive. You need to say more positive things. How about I write a book about how to get you to say positive things and think positively? Because if you'll think positively, you'll have, you'll have what? You'll have a dark, positive world. That's what you'll have. <laughs> Self-help movement. Again, I'm all for us taking responsibility for our lives and making sound decisions and, and doing things that just are, are good things to do. But when that teaching never says anything about this light dawning from outside of you, it teaches you to look inside. And can I just tell you, the remedy, the answer to darkness, it, it's not found by looking inward. It is found by looking upward. Right? And, and the darkness you and I live in, it's going to take an intervention from God to show up with light that he must give. And he does so by his grace. Secondly, the God who intervenes is the God of miracles. 
The God who uses unlimited and unconfined and unearthly powers to bring hope into our lives. Right? This, is, this is darkness. God is, is going to inject hope into darkness. And how is he going to do that? Miraculously. A virgin is going to conceive. There is no scientific explanation for that. How many of you have noticed that there's some things about what God does in the Bible that don't, say it this way, stand up to science? They're not scientific. Which, by the way, I mean, I have an engineering background, so I've got a little bit of science issue going on inside of me. There was, there was this point in existence when there was nothing. Nothing. Science doesn't have the ability to measure nothing. But there was nothing. And then a moment later, there was something. Matter of fact, there was a lot of something. But even if there was just a little bit of something, you understand scientifically, you cannot explain that. God just said, let there be, and there was a lot of being after that, because he just spoke, and it was the most unscientific thing. You're calling me to believe in a God whose science can't explain? Yep. That's exactly what you're called to believe. And that God keeps doing stuff like that. A woman who's got no means of being pregnant suddenly has a life inside of her. See, that's why I can't believe the Bible. I mean, that's just, that's just impossible. You know, the Bible's full of stuff that's just not possible. All right, here, here's a, a simple rule of existence that I think somehow gets overlooked. Science, science is the exploration, observation, and measurement of known realities. That's what it is. And it's, it's measuring the laws that govern why things do what they do. And it discovers them, right? At some point, the law of gravity. Well, it's always here. But at some point, somebody gave it a name and, and you know, observed it and wrote a bunch of stuff about it and God got hit in the head by an apple, etc. So, oh, there's this law of gravity out there. Right? But, but recognize, all of our existence sits under and inside of this bubble that science seeks to measure and understand it. God, however, lives outside of that bubble. God, you can't measure God by science, by that kind of observation of the created order. And at any moment, he can stick his head inside the bubble and take his head back out whenever he wants. And when he does so, he plays by his own rules. And so he sticks his head in and says, let there be. And then he, okay, look at that. And then he sticks his head in again and says, you're going to have a child. And he violates science all the time. But it's, it's not a violation because God was never called to play by the rules of science. He exists outside of science. And he sticks his head in if you will, in some ways, that make us go, wait, 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 none of us can do that. So how can we believe that you can do that? Well, it's a real easy thought. He's not one of us. <laughs> Just breaking that to you today. 
He's God and we're creatures. And you and I have a hard time ever playing outside the realm of science. And when somebody claims to, that's pretty weird. God doesn't have that issue. He's totally different than us. And he breaks into our world. And I hold on to this because he broke into that world unscientifically. Can he break into your world unscientifically? Can he show up in your life in ways that you will have no explanation as to how he did that and where'd that come from? Can he do that? Yeah, that's why he writes this stuff down. So you and I remember that he does that. Here, third point. The nativity, this incarnation, is the dawning of a hope that we cannot see. Right, if you were living in the land in 6 B.C., And you look as far as the eye can see into whatever element of society that you could find. The people around you, the money in your bank account, the politics of the day, the economy that was going on, the guy sitting on the throne as king. If you looked at all those things, you couldn't see hope as far as the eye could see. There was no hope around you. You are going to live this dark, oppressed existence for as far as your human eye could make out. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, light dawned. God shows up out of the invisible. Where did that come from? Out of nowhere. If you were sitting and waiting, right? Because remember, the Messiah was supposed to sit on the throne of David. That's in the Bible. And you're looking at Herod sitting on the throne of David. And you're looking at his descendants. Are you looking at that going, any day now, any moment now, this is going to be awesome. Now you're staring at the place where you think this is going to show up. And there's nothing there in that setting. And God shows up in a really different way, in a way you didn't think he would. Listen, nobody was standing around. Listen, these guys, all these guys, they, got, they cheated, right? The shepherds show up there at the manger scene. They cheated. I mean, wouldn't you go check stuff out too if a bunch of angels freaked you out and told you, hey, you better go over here and check this out. Okay, we're going. There weren't people looking for some carpenter dude and his wife to be having a baby in the middle of nowhere saying, oh, look, he who sits on the throne of David. Nobody was thinking that way. They were staring at the throne of David as they understood it and Herod was sitting on the throne of David and there was nothing to hope for in that guy. As a matter of fact, you run from him for your life. How confusing is that? The thing that you're looking to is the thing that you are also most afraid of. That's 6 BC. That's darkness. But God does stuff like that. Out of nowhere. Right, I read this verse to you in Romans chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago. And there was just too much there to chew on in one meeting. So we'll go back to it. Romans 8 verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing as those people in Palestine were doing. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's a good definition for, for darkness. That's what darkness is. It is a bondage to corruption. Things in our lives are corrupt. Our own bodies are corrupt. Our minds are corrupt. We're married to corrupt people. We're raising corrupt children. We're part of a corrupt church. Corruption is everywhere. Right? Lower your expectations a bit, will you? But there's coming a day, right, when creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, not only those lost people, not only the people who deny light, night, uh, don't know God, don't read their Bibles, not just those people, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, the hope that is seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is very helpful. You miss this point and you will be at odds with God in your life over and over and over again. Because everybody wants the bitterness of life to go away. I want to taste hope. That's what I want to taste. And God wants us to taste hope. But he has a way for us to look for it. And he shows up suddenly in light. And we hope because we know he's like that. We hope because we know at any moment light can dawn. That's how God is. We wait like those were waiting for his appearing. We are waiting for his return. And it could come that and suddenly change everything about our world here I wrote these two paragraphs in your outline I just want to gaze at them with you the reality of this nativity scene is not just something we commemorate once a year it is something we are living every day as ancient Palestine groaned under the weight and burden of corruption abuse of power, human depravity and the brokenness of the world outside of Eden And it waited for hope to emerge from outside of itself and its own abilities to save or deliver. So too we wait as well. But are we waiting for a hope that we cannot see? A hope that is from another realm. A hope that must appear out of nowhere. A hope that is not the product of our own resources, our own efforts, our own intelligence, or anybody else around us. A hope that emerges into our lives at just the right and appointed time that comes from the wisdom, initiative, and provision of the Father. And so this morning, what... what, what are, you, what are you looking to for, for hope? 
what is it that if it could happen right now, would suddenly make you look into your future with a sense of an- joyful anticipation? What awaits my life is something that I anticipate well. I have, I have hope for the future. Listen, it's very tempting to frame that out of what we can see. So you just got a raise, you got a good report, got a new job, met some new people, came to a church, it's been really exciting lately. Now things are changing, I just feel different. Right? All these things are things you can see and we wait for those things to happen so that we can feel this sense of hope. But God says, who, who hopes for what he can see? God's way is to put our hope in a place where suddenly this God of the invisible resources can show up at any moment in our world the way he did at this little Christmas story. In the midst of darkness and no hope anywhere, light dawns into that moment. And here comes hope incarnate. And he's still doing that today. He's, he's still showing up in our lives today that way. It's a massive lesson. This will keep you from moving on to Santa Claus, I promise you. But this morning, I, I want the Holy Spirit to be able to, to serve you and minister to you. If, if where you are right now is dark, And I don't necessarily just mean dark because there's demonic things or could be. But just dark because it doesn't feel like there's any hope for you. Life just feels drained of hopeful anticipation. That's, that's a dark place. And I believe God wants to minister to us this morning. So can I, can I switch your mode of listening now to a mode of responding, right? Done listening. Now what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Let's stand up together and ask the Lord to come help us. I want to pray for folks this morning. I want us to, to give you an opportunity to stand before God and received by the Holy Spirit right now, this morning. So in just a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to receive from God. And, and you're going to have to respond. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to respond to God by faith. But just a couple of sorts of people I had a sense for us to be sensitive to. So just listen for the Holy Spirit calling you and touching you. If you have recently been feeling unmotivated, withdrawn, disconnected, like I had a sense in just praying that you would be here this morning having thought really about not coming, it's not going to come. Because there's just not oomph in your life right now. There's just not a go get it in your life. It's just drained. Life has been very disappointing. Life's been hard. It's been dark. 
believe the Lord wants to suddenly appear, dawn with his light. Maybe you're here this morning and you've long moved beyond unmotivated and disconnected. You are, you are angry now. And that anger began with questions, questions for God. Now it's just, it's just anger off the leash. Perhaps you've even forgotten what started the anger. But life is just not what you thought it was going to be. Something, something's just wrong. God, God must be wrong. Everything's got to be wrong. Maybe you're here this morning and you're very mindful of things in your life that seem immovable. Things that are long-standing things that don't seem to move. No matter how much you've tried to move them or make them different, they have stayed the same. And you are here this morning having given up on hope. Maybe that's in categories of your finances. Maybe it's in your marriage relationship that you've given up hope. Or maybe it's relationship with your children, what's going on with them. You don't feel a sense of hope, but that's, this God this morning wants to put you in touch with Him and what He's like and who He is. And I think He wants to fix two things. I think He wants to fix first, ultimately, what are you looking to in hope? Why do you hope for what you see? There's, there's unseen realities that God is saying, lift your hope and put it there. Something outside your moment, something outside your people, something outside your own strength or failures. Look there. Lift your eyes. Look there. Who knows when this God who has prepared for you eternal light outside of darkness forever. But it is still his business to break into your darkness with light here, now. So I want to I pray for you. If you're here this morning and you are battling with hope, could you, could you come forward? Let us pray for you. Let us pray for light to come into your darkness. Listen, if you're feeling the darkness, you're, you're not out of bounds. There's not a Christian in this room who can claim that their life doesn't have darkness in it. Because this darkness is not going to lift until we go to heaven. So if you're thinking that, well, I must have created the darkness. Well, no, no, no the darkness was here long before you did anything. It's part of the reality of this fallen world. And it presses on us. And we need God to step into this moment. And I want those of us who are here, you 
maybe you've been a person who you know something about living in darkness and the struggles of, of having hope in moments and seasons of your life that, that you would come and find folks to pray with so that you can be a means of God's grace to transfer courage and strength in the darkness into their lives. Before, before we pray, I, I just want to share this word, especially for those who, who are venturing into anger. There was a moment in Job's life, and if you've lived in the darkness for a season, you have been reading Job, I'm sure, where Job questions God. And in Job chapter 38, God responds by pulling out his resume. God responds by showing himself to Job. And he he asks this particular question in light of today's lesson. He says, Job, have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Job, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? Job, you're outside of your pay grade. To think you could instruct me on how to manage darkness and light. Lord, I pray this morning for those under the oppressive weight of darkness however it has come, with all the power that it drains out of us, or for those who are standing here today who perhaps have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this darkness to lift and it just won't lift. And how all of life just feels dark. And Lord, for some, that's massively discouraging. And for others, that discouragement has given way to anger. And the struggle to even be motivated, Lord. I thank you that they're here. Lord, I thank you that everything in them that said, don't bother. What difference will it make? You don't need people asking you questions about how you're doing. Lord, they ignored all that noise and they are here this morning. And they are here with the God who does know the gates of deep darkness. They are here with the God who knows the way to the dwelling of light and how to get out of darkness. They are here with that God. Lord, you know the way. But we don't know the way. And it's confusing. 
and we feel lost and wandering. But Lord, you know the way to the dwelling of light. Lord, lead us there. Lord, meet us this morning. God, open our eyes to see the God who appeared in Galilee. Who was born into this world with his light suddenly showing up in such darkness is still that God. You are still the God who shows up in our darkness. And Lord, remind us, Lord, every heart standing here before you, God, needs a healthy, strong reminder, Lord, that ultimately you will completely overthrow darkness with a day of light that never diminishes. That's what awaits us. That's what you have purchased for us. But Lord, just as you invaded the darkness of Palestine, Lord, would you invade the darkness that's here in Metairie and Kenner and New Orleans and the places where we live and the lives that are standing here before you. Lord, this morning... God, would you show up into these spaces, Lord? Would you let light come? Would you let your spirit bring heavenly light, Lord? That's what you do, Lord. You adjust our world because you are not limited by our world. And you can bring us a taste of heaven at any moment. Lord, some folks here need an encouraging moment with you. God, they need you to give them light for the days ahead a sense of you are near a sense of your plan is unfolding a hope that God you are busy 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 leading them to the dwelling place of light they are not off course they have not been forgotten well your spirit alone can bring that kind of light into our moments where it feels dark God I pray you do that God, we pray for that for each person standing here before you. God, I pray that every time this Christmas season there's a a twinkling light or a star on a tree, it would be a reminder. Lord, the next few weeks would be full of reminders of the God who brings light into our darkness. You are faithful, Lord. And whether it's a miraculous intervention like a a child born without explanation, Lord, you can find us. You can reach us. You can meet our need. Oh, Spirit of God, speak these things to us. Lord, let them be real in our hearts. Let them be reminded over and over and over again. God, let there be a releasing from these dark places without hope. let this story of Christmas be much bigger to us it wasn't just an event in the past it's today too and the God who is that way in this story he is still that way in our story let your light shine in our hearts faith may come and strength may come as you lead us out of the gates of darkness into the dwelling places of light. That's what we pray.
And that's what we ask for. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.